Hey, it's Garbage Brain University. I'm Drew Toothpaste. I'm Natalie D. Today we're talking... Books. Strictly smart guy talk. Only books. Talk about it. Talk about it. It's like only fans, but it's just... you. Can I see uh, only page... Only books. <laughs> Can I see page 36 up close? Oh, yeah. Touch it. Touch it with your finger. But it's not... But it's not... Yeah. That's what, that's what books have that... Other kind of stuff doesn't have. You could touch it. Lots of things are corporeal. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to actually you like in the first minute. I'm just. I want to add to what you said and say I agree. And other things exist. Other things have materialized as well. In the, in the material plane. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Books are one of those things. What I'm saying is like. You can have a computer which has thousands and thousands of books on it. Right. Or just this one. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the lo-fi, just this one book. It's good times. I like books. Do you like books? Sure. Sure. I have a ton of books. They don't really read fiction anymore. I don't get fiction books and read fiction. It just, uh, it's not something I do anymore. I used to do it a lot, and uh, things have changed, I guess. Right. I don't really play video games either. Right. Really? I've kind of gotten into collecting books lately. But you read them. I do read them, but I also am with intention picking out books so I can amass a collection of them, like of particular themes. To use as reference. Yeah. That's yes. my favorite kind of book to have is a reference book because then you have a need to own the book. Right. I think that is something that happened to me with fiction is number one, after I read a book, I don't need to read it again. And if I buy it and I have it sitting around, I'm not going to read it again. So I'm just going to give it to somebody, right? right? Hey, have you read this book? No. Okay, well, you can take it. Then the person's like, well, I'll borrow it. I'll bring it back. And you, you say, okay, they won't bring it back, but you don't need it. You've already read it. Mm -hmm. A reference book, you need it to reference to. Yeah, I think that... The vast majority of the books I have are reference books. I would say probably 98% of the books I have are reference books. And then I have like a very, very small number of fiction books that are either my absolute favorite shit of all time or stuff that is like, in my opinion, so classic that I feel like I want to have a copy of it in the house just in case. Well, sure. And there's something to be said for if you have kids to have copies of books that are good because they kind of like wander around the house picking stuff up. Right. That's what, that's like the main thing to do when you're a kid. Now, I don't know. I don't know if kids still do this. I feel like our kid doesn't do this as much as I did, but I know absolutely by the time I was 10, I had picked up every object in our house at least once. Right. By the time I got to be like, oh gosh, I was pretty young. Eight or nine. I read every book in the house. Oh yeah. Yeah. I read everything. Everything. I read The Godfather when I was like in fourth or fifth grade. Well, sure. Over the summer. I just read The Godfather. Sure. Why not? <laughs> why not? I mean, there was a paucity of things to do. Right. And there were not many job opportunities for kids, you know, eight, nine years old. Right, right. It was like one of my last summers off. I just read The Godfather and had some alone time. <laughs> but I read like medical textbooks because my mom was going to nursing school. And so I read every single book she brought in the house for school. I just read fucking all of them. Well, my, yeah, my 
my dad had a bunch of Russian books around. My, now, my dad was not Russian. My dad learned Russian when he was in the service. And uh, so he had a bunch of Russian books laying around. I'd asked him to teach me stuff in Russian. He'd always say, oh, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> right. But I would go through them because I liked how the letters looked different. There's something very compelling. And also, I feel like Soviet-era Russian stuff was not aesthetically modernized in the same way as things were in America. So it had a very old-timey vibe to it. Right. So I liked reading it. And there was a lot of, like, English to Russian stuff. So I read I read a lot of this stuff. I didn't teach myself Russian by any means. It It's not a language that a child could teach to themselves. Right, right. I'm not saying I actually learned anything, but I always found it very, uh, very intriguing but i also didn't believe my dad that he didn't know any of it because uh he went he didn't know a scrap of it he grew up in appalachia and enlisted and then they were like you do not need to be like holding a gun man <laughs> you don't need to be flying an airplane or anything dude you need to go to school <laughs> so they made him go to school and he learned russian in nine months which is insane and then they had him like, you know, he was spying on the Russians and fucking writing down all their shit they said in Russian and translating it and writing down in English and, you know, passing that around. And that was some of the shit that I read when I was a kid because there was fucking nothing. You would read catalogs. I would read mail order catalogs. Anytime I found out I could get a free mail order catalog, I would get it. We used to get this shit called U.S. Cavalry. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember that? No, I didn't get that one. There's like a modern equivalent. There's something called Bud K now, which is very similar. But it was this like, it catered to like ex-military guys and like survivalists and like wannabe military guys. But as a little boy, I thought it was very cool that you could get decommissioned grenades and like camping equipment and all of this stuff. It was like a pencil that worked underwater. Ooh, yeah, right. <laughs> No, the, the catalog I used to always look at when I was a kid was that Lillian Vernon one, which was all like, it was like the AliExpress for grandmas in the 80s. Oh, yeah. Uh, was it like Finger Hut? <laughs> no, it's not. Which has the worst name of all time. <laughs> no, it wasn't Finger Hut. <laughs> it, it was like... Uh, like a little hair bonnet you'll wear over your curlers with a tube that you hook to your hair dryer so you can blow your curlers without having to move your hand around. <laughs> Shit like oh, that. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like special reading glasses where you can take one lens and, and crank it down and expose your eye so you can have your reading glasses on while you put your eye makeup on your other eye. <laughs> Shit like that. I've like, never heard the most that. Use, the most useless garbage ever, like bunion socks. So it was like, <laughs> so it was like old lady Ron Popeil. Yeah, it was like old lady shit, like the most cheapest garbage plastic shit. But it was like for old ladies who were like living the old lady lifestyle. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. And once you've nailed down that somebody is like AARPH, you can just start sending them that shit and they'll just order. <laughs> right. I right. think old people still mail order stuff. They'll still fill out the form and send in a check. I kind of want, I mean, that would be so novel, wouldn't it, if you had to do that? I'm I would feel like it was like exclusive if I had to do that. I don't think I've done that uh in over 20 years but i do i remember mailing a check like it happened 
uh, just a few times in between when I was old enough to have enough money to have checks. Right. And when they stopped doing that because you just ordered everything mm -hmm. online. There was mm -hmm. probably a two or three year period. But I ordered some stuff from catalogs. Ordered maybe a t-shirt. I ordered Urban Decay lipstick like the day it came out. Mail order. Oh, yeah. You got like the Sassy magazine. You pulled it. It wasn't even in Sassy. I don't even think it was in Sassy magazine. It was something. I don't even remember how. I don't remember how I. It was like me and a friend of mine. We got a money order. We placed, yeah. an order to, we placed an order together. I don't remember how we stumbled across it, but it was like the very first Urban Decay lipstick that ever came out. You guys kind of test ran it. Like if it, if it had done something bad to your body, you would have been the first ones to find out. Right. You'd be like, this is poisonous. No, it wasn't though. It was really great. And I, it was one of the first lipsticks I ever got that I actually used the whole thing. Yeah. I use it down to the stub. Was it the was it the one you had on when there's like one goth picture I'm thinking of where it's like your mom in the house and she's sitting on a couch and like the backdrop is like three different floral wallpapers and there's like pink and brass like floral stuff on a table and she's sitting there and she's like smiling and laughing and you were sitting there giving the camera a death stare and you have on like this very dark red lipstick. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I had a lot of lipstick. That was like my thing. I always had like hella lipstick on when I was in high school. Yeah. But the ones I got, the, the Urban Decay ones, you had to get the weird ones. And so I got the ones that were like purplish, bluish colors when I got those. Because you couldn't get that anywhere. Oh, yeah. You couldn't get that anywhere back then. Oh, yeah. Not even like the stock up Halloween makeup colors. Right. Nothing like that. Yeah. So, Natalie. What? Tell me, what is a book? A book is a medium for recording information in the form of writing or images, typically composed of many pages made of papyrus, parchment, vellum, or paper, bound together and protected by a cover. There it is. That's a pretty comprehensive explanation. So is a magazine a book? A book? <sighs> well, it's a medium for recording information. But it doesn't have a cover because the front of it is paper also. It's not protected, really. It's as rippable as any other page in the whole shebang. Any book is rippable if you're strong enough. <laughs> All books are temporary. <laughs> Everything's temporary. There's a, you know, it's a spectrum. Book to magazine. Zines are on there somewhere. Or is, is a zine a book? Is a matchbook a book? A what? A matchbook. I think matchbook uses the term book euphemistically. Right. But it's recording information, which is little pieces of cardboard and phone numbers. Do they make matchbooks anymore? I'm sure you could get some. Actually, they do because it makes me mad because I always want to make little ceramic shits that you can strike matches on. Uh -huh. But the strike at anywhere matches are really hard to find. And so whenever I look for them, I always find the, the stupid paper ones, but the strike at anywhere ones are not so easy to find. Really? Yeah. Because guess... because they don't like to mail them because if they hit something, they'll catch on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you send something through UPS and you mark it, please do not strike this anywhere. <laughs> 
man, I ordered some shit that was going to get delivered here in a couple weeks, and I'm, I just know they're just going to kick it all the way here. I, I'm so paranoid anymore. If anything does not get shipped to me within a few days, I assume they're just kicking it the entire way across the country. Yeah, well, what are you, you going to do? I'm just concerned. It's because it's my, it's my range hood for above the stove, and it's going to be made out of thin metal which is going to deform like old pop can if someone kicks it that's why i'm that's why i'm thinking about it you just envision the box getting here and the box is pristine you open it up and that range hood is so beautiful it's gonna install itself think about it it's gonna be great so the instruction manual that's not a book the instruction manual in the box that's not a book well, it's a manual. I mean, you could have a hardbound manual, like if you had a very complicated synthesizer, and that yeah. would and that would be a book. But if it is merely an instruction manual on how to turn on a range hood, it might be four pages long. Yeah, I would call I would call that a pamphlet. I just I think it's a sliding scale. I think right. it's about intent and context. I like to really drag out the the concept of it, though. I really like to think about what is a book really the phil- the philosophy of a book. I I think you could have something that has a, a self cover so the cover is the same material as the body i think you could have a self cover perfect bound so it just has you know a couple little staples in it uh-huh. and that could be a book right i you know what i think i i think i know what the difference is i think i know where the line is right you know where, you know where the line is are you supposed to throw it away when you're finished with it if the answer is yes then it's not a book okay all right i could see that yeah you're not going to keep the instructions for putting together your bookcase after the bookcase is put together right. even if they put a spine on it yeah yeah you're not going to keep like a catalog from two years ago just to remember the old products by yeah that's true so that's not a book not a book see i just figured it out i told you if we just like hemmed and hawed about what what is a book really i would figure it out i just did i cracked that nut so in general though a book is a composition of length that takes an investment of time for the person who writes it to compose it and it is also an investment in time for the person who is reading it right yeah so natalie tell me who invented books uh people invented books back we've talked about this before back in the old days (laughs) like the extremely old days the very old days (laughs) the oldest days that we're aware of they had clay tablets Prior no. to that, we don't know what they were up to, really, right? Mm-hmm. You might yeah. you might call that prehistory, prehistoric. We don't have any written history of it, right? But clay tablets were the shit that people used back then. Yeah, that was the first thing that lasted. Right, and so they used those in Mesopotamia in the third millennium BC, right? Yeah, and so they had a little instrument that had like a triangular shaped point. And they would, like, jab it in, like, different directions and stuff, right? Like, if you ever seen yeah. this, like, Sumerian text. Oh, yeah. The little, they look like little horns. They look like little uh, bugles, like little fox beep, hunt. Beep, 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 and they just poke, yeah. poke it in there. And it's like, do, 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 do. And it's like, stack of three. And then one standing up the other direction. And then two of them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that's what they, so they would poke it into the clay and sometimes they would fire it and sometimes they wouldn't, right? It just would depend. Uh... They had a library of 20,000 tablets in Nineveh that was from the 7th century BC. And that had all kinds of libraries from the kings of Assyria. Okay, so they were actually like storing and organizing Mm -hmm. information at that time. It wasn't just 
that they were just writing down little things. Yeah, right. This was actually like an archive. Mm -hmm. And then what was the first paper? Papyrus. Papyrus, yeah. So they would have stems of this reed that was the papyrus reed, right? And so they would like get it wet and squish it and dry it and glue it and cut it and do all this different shit in order to make this paper that they would use to make scrolls. And so that was like the original book because they would have like the papyrus and the longer it was, the taller it was. Like, whoa, because they didn't think about stacking the pages up yet. (laughs) Yeah, they just rolled it on a pole. Uh Uh-huh, and so they just rolled it up. And so there are papyruses that are very long, right? Yeah. (laughs) They could be 10 meters long or more, right? There is the history of the reign of Ramses III that was 40 meters meters long that's insane and they were usually rolled out horizontally okay and it was divided then into columns okay so it was like newspaper Mm -hmm. style and then they would have a scroll it would be kept in a cylinder and then the title of it would be on a label on a cylinder that makes sense and so there's like a whole bunch of different we like we found a lot of of that kind of stuff because they would use it in the pyramids right Mm -hmm. like most people in Egypt were buried with variations of like coffin texts or pyramid texts or book of the dead and they and so that that was just like a big scroll right uh-huh and that was like a book kind of it was bookish it was book-esque right and so the first books that were we'd be like oh look at that book guys like a square guy and look at the pages right they Oof. were called codex right okay and so they would have two covers made out of something that was pretty substantial and then they would have pages in between and so the first mention of a codex was at the end of the first century so people were writing for three thousand years before they figured out how to make a fucking book right (laughs) well they had the scrolls they were fine just rolled up you never lost lost a page i guess they yeah i guess that's true just random access was not really the thing. You really had to start at the beginning of the scroll. Right, right. Well, you could put, like, maybe you could, like, put, like, a pretzel or something in the area where you left off last. <laughs> Egyptian pretzel. <laughs> they probably had pretzels. They were pretty smart back then. Think about it. It'd probably be a jackal-headed pretzel. <laughs> So the big change from scrolls to books really happened in the third and fourth centuries. Um, The first mention of a book was, like I said, around 100, right? Yeah. But it was not in a book. It was someone else talking about how he saw a book, and that was a great idea. (laughs) Like, this thing is great. It seems like it's really, it's like super portable. Like, it seems really easy to, like, just thumb through it, man. It seems great. But it took another 200 years to, like, really move away from doing scrolls to doing books. Yeah, but I could see how it would blow your mind if you were a scholar and you're used to, like, getting out a tube and rolling your tube out. You probably got a real long desk somewhere. Right, right. Like a 40 meter, like, yo, you're always rolling it back up and rolling it down and up and down and up and down. Roll master. And then somebody just walks by with a book. And, and you're like, like, what the fuck? What the fuck is that? And he has bookmarks. How long do you think it took him to invent bookmarks? You know, that first guy probably had a couple. I just, you know, sometimes it takes humans so long to come up with something. Like, that is just the thing is it's really not impressive. Like, all the stuff we have now should have been developed so long ago. (laughs) It probably was, though. Think about it. Oh, well. (laughs) There is that. I... (laughs) 
I think possibly the same thing that nerfed us and kept us from going fully telepathic. Maybe held us back a little bit <laughs> in terms of our intellect. <laughs> sure. Like, this is the thing is, you know, humans exist on this planet for how long? I mean, hominids, millions of years, actual, honest, you know, human type people, like 50, 100,000 years-ish, something like that. Yeah, something like that. And uh, we get all this way, and it's not until 1969 AD that we get three guys that land on the fucking moon. Right. And we patted ourselves on the back. We were like, that was amazing, y'all. <laughs> Man, the other day I saw some shit that was like some old ass shit from like 50,000 years ago or 70,000 years ago. I forget how long. It was pretty long. You know how I like to do. I like to read stuff and then forget everything about it and then bring it up later and you guys try to verify it. I don't know. Anyway, I saw this thing. 50,000 years ago or whatever, it was like a needle that people would have used to sew, right? And it was clearly a needle. It was like some kind of quill, and it had a little teeny hole drilled in the end to put the thread through, right? Yeah. But yeah. it was it was one of those Denisovans. Uh-huh. It was not a modern human. It was not even people who had the technology. It was a couple groups before us, man. At least, yeah. And first of all, it was, an, it was clearly a sewing needle. And so maybe they got a porcupine quill. Maybe they got something that sort of already existed. But how did they drill a little tiny hole in it? Right, right. With another porcupine quill that was littler, probably. Maybe, but wouldn't they be the same strength? That, it seems crazy, and it, seemed, it was a very clean hole. Right. Also, it was very clean. It was not ragged. It wasn't the first one they made. No. They were good at it by that point. Right, right. <laughs> it's interesting to think about. I really like, that's something I always enjoy thinking about, is how inconsequential we actually are, and how actually impressive everything else is. Like, there's nothing that is like not as impressive as we are. You mean modern humans? Right. I think that everything is, is just as impressive in its own way. I don't think that modern humans have done anything that anything else on this planet. And I don't think we've done anything positive. No, uh-uh. Nothing positive. That, that anything else on this planet could not have done. And I do think that the fact that we were sewing clothes together, you know, 70,000, however many years ago, and, you know, grab an average person, an average 18-year-old, just in prime physical shape, right? And ask them to sew clothes. And I think if you, if you grabbed 100 18-year-old Americans, I think some of them would be able to figure it out if you gave them a needle and thread. If you gave them a porcupine quill and you put them in a park <laughs> and you said, you can use anything, you use anything here, but you need to sew some clothes. Right. It would not happen. Right. <laughs> and yeah. it's not, I'm not making a statement. I'm not making some asinine statement saying kids don't know how to work. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that humans are not very good at figuring stuff out. We right. love to say that humans are smart. Humans love to be like, people are so good and smart. And we figured, as a matter of fact, there's only been 107 or 110 billion people ever. There's only been that many. And a handful of them may have figured out that space bends. <laughs> right, right. We think there might be other dimensions. I don't know. If you drive a car real fast, it will get heavier, I think, or lighter. <laughs> 
Does he get heavier if he goes faster? I don't know, Einstein. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the real bad news for Papyrus was when the Roman Empire fell in the 5th century. Oh, really? And when that happened, Papyrus was hard to get because people lost contact with Egypt as much as they used to have it, right? Yeah. There wasn't as much trade going on. Uh, And so they had to move to using parchment, which you could not roll up as much like that. Okay. And that was made out of animal skin. Yeah, right. So it was made out of calf skin, sheep skin, goat skin, etc., etc. And so you would scrape it and dry it under tension. And then you would use that for your paper, man. But if you get it wet or there's moisture, it will turn back into rawhide, which is disgusting. (laughs) I didn't know that. Right. I imagine also when you're paper gets wet and it returns to its animal skin state that the writing on it probably suffers as well probably yeah like what kind of ink did they use back then were they using iron gall back then in the old the very oldest days they would use soot and gum so just kind of like carbon, like carbon from soot, just from burning shit, and some kind of like natural gum yeah. to kind of bind it together. Mm. Probably was not the most enduring. Well, I think it was it was water-based. People mostly used water-based ink up until Gutenberg. Yeah. Hmm. Think about it. I really like thinking about ink. They really should have thought more about having archival quality inks back then because it would have been very nice to see what their books were about. <laughs> I'm, I'm about to cancel these ancient societies for not using archival paper and acid-free ink. You're canceled. Right. You guys should have thought about this. It would have been so much better. So the main way of books back in the back in the old days, right? The way they would do the books was always like a monk thing, right? Yeah. And so there would be monasteries and they were the ones who were the main writing guys and so before they invented the printing press all the books that you can get were copied by hand and so books were super duper expensive and most people did not have books yeah the amount of labor that would have gone into one book how long do you think it would take you to copy a vc andrews book by hand a very long time, probably, yeah. Um, how many words do you think a V.C. Andrews book is? Um, I don't, I truly don't know off the top of my head. Maybe, uh, they're like 300 pages. Yeah, sure. How long would it take you to copy one page of a V.C. Andrews? 10 minutes, maybe. Okay, so 3,000 minutes. <laughs> 50 hours, but that would be you writing really fast. Yeah, that'd be me writing my regular, like, block writing where I could just knock it out real quick. If I was doing it in, in like, texture, a quadrata, and illuminating it and having to make it perfect so I could bind it in a book made out of the flesh of an animal, it would probably take me considerably longer. Now, if you could write in, like, classic black letter calligraphy... Mm-hmm. And you could copy a VC Andrews and you could illuminate like the first letter of each chapter. That would actually be dope. I would probably like to have like a illuminated black letter copy of Flowers in the Attic. <laughs> if there are any monks in the Discord. <laughs> I could do the calligraphy, but I'm not interested in taking that project on, I don't think. <laughs> 
Well, those monks, I mean, they teamed up. It wasn't just one, it wasn't just one monk who would sit and do a Bible. They Mm-mm. they teamed up, right? Yeah, yeah. So the books were so rare that the little monasteries would only have like a dozen books. If it was a big monastery that was like very fancy, like in Avignon where the Pope was or some shit like that, they might have 2,000 books, which is not that many, right? Yeah. The other thing is back in the old days when they had books, they would have to have special rooms to keep them in because they thought that having any artificial light at all would damage it. Oh, okay. Right? And then making the books was a group effort because they had all kinds of people who were working on it. They had the people who did the calligraphy. They had people who they called copyists who dealt with like basic production stuff with the books, right? They had correctors who would go through and, like, collate the pages and compare the book with the manuscript to make sure that it matched, right? Uh Uh-huh. Then they had illuminators who would do all the paintings inside, and then they had rubricators who would do all of the red letters in the text. Okay. So it was like an assembly line. Yeah, People had one specific job that they would do. Right, right. And so, okay, so they had... All of you working on it, and it took forever. It took forever to do all the parchment, so they had to get all the parchment prepared. And they would plan out all the pages, and it would be unbound, right? And so they would then go on all of these pieces of parchment, which are really irregular because it's like animal skin, right? Yeah. And they would put, draw out the pages and all the ruling and stuff on it so they could line it up. Graphics design, man. First time people were doing it, right? And then they would give it to the scribe who would write out the text and leave the blank areas for illustrations and for like the rubrication. So when they do the red words and stuff. So they would leave all that stuff blank and then they would ha- pass it on to the next guy, right? Okay, yeah. And so each person would add their part to it. And then the last guy was the binder and he would take all of the pages once they were all cut to size and and finished and he would whip it up. Oh, God. If that guy fucked your shit up after you spent all that time copying it and he just like he fucked up the binding. Right. Well, that you know what? Knowing about that, it that makes me more relaxed than I imagine. In my head, whenever I think about people doing those things, I always imagine them writing in it like if it was a journal. And so I always get like anxiety thinking about book people in the Middle Ages. Oh, you thought they'd start with a blank book yeah, and write Yeah, and then into- they fucked it up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they make a mistake, right? This is much better. My 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 fears are... Yeah, you just do one page at a time, then yeah. you get it perfect. And if right. it's not perfect, you can redo it. I mean, it makes complete sense. But I, you know what? It's because of TV. Like, you always see, like, movies where it has, like, people in the Middle Ages and there's some monk guy writing in a book, and it's already bound already. Yeah. Incorrect. Yeah, that's not Incorrect. it. Incorrect. That's not it. They were not that stupid. If they fucked it up, they would just get another piece of parchment and do it again. <laughs> Easy peasy. So they would use, like you said, the soot and gum ink and then gall and iron vitriol. And so the different inks would have different colors, be like brownish black, but then they had red and gold, which they would use for the illumination parts. And there are some very fancy books that have purple. Oh, yeah. Or have gold or silver text and etc etc in the seventh century they introduced putting spaces in between words (laughs) see i told you (laughs) 
people take so fucking long to do stuff the right way. Uh-huh, right. It made reading a lot easier. Yes. But it did not become commonplace until the 12th century. Okay, 500 years for people to accept that putting spaces between the words made sense. Yeah, right. But, you know, I will say that I do know a little bit about the way that they used to write that kind of shit. And I do know a little bit about, like, the quadrata style of fonts. And there was an element of squishing stuff up as much as possible because paper was expensive. Yeah, yeah. And so you would want it to be very close. So even when they would have spaces, they weren't that big. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like the words themselves, like the, the letters would touch almost. And there would even be like, if you put two letters next to each other, they would sometimes stick them together and create a new third letter that took up less space. Oh, that's why they started doing the ligatures. Yeah, right. So there was like a lot of like lig- ligatures with R's and, and other letters that would happen after other ones, like fairly regularly, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're always cramming in, cramming in, cramming in, because you got to save paper, baby. That's made out of animals. That's a pain in the ass when you run on paper. <laughs> Then they started thinking about maybe what if we started printing, right? Great idea. And so the first printing was like wood blocks, right? And so they would carve into wood blocks and put ink on them and then press it onto the paper. And they started doing that in China in around 280, right? Really? Uh huh. And so you would carve an entire wood block and then you would just print onto paper just like you'd imagine. Right. They started off doing it on textiles first. And then they did it later on paper. Okay. And so the oldest printed book is something called the Diamond Sutra that came out in 868, which had the woodblock printing. So way, so hundreds of years before Gutenberg, they had books that were actually printed just using woodblock. Right. And so doing woodblocks arrived in Europe in the early 14th century. And that is when they started doing woodblock illustration. I actually have a huge tattoo of a woodblock from a medieval book about plants. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm very much, I think it's a very tight look. It looks very sick. So you should look up some medieval woodcuts. They're very dope. I, as you might imagine, I like medieval woodcuts. <laughs> I also have a thing for them. I think they're very cool looking. I like seeing what medieval and, you know, medieval and later artists found fit to reproduce and what they found to be not essential of, you know, the images they were portraying. Right. Because, you know, prior to the Renaissance, mostly, uh, artists were were kind of being more figurative in what they were depicting, right. not being so photorealistic. Right, right. right. My, my little tattoo does not look that photorealistic at all. Anyway, so they would do these block prints, and so they would do those to make playing cards and, like, religious prayer cards and shit like that. People love that crap, right? Yeah. But, again, that was very painstaking because there was a block for each page, and the blocks would crack, and they would get old, and you would have to do them over and over again, right? And you'd have to ink them in between mm-hmm. each print. And right. you did not have a little rubber roller, I wouldn't imagine. No, no, Probably had not. to do something that was a little more of a pain. Right. Um, there was a Chinese inventor named Bai Shang in 1045 who made movable type out of earthenware. Oh, yeah? But there was no surviving examples of anything that was used with his printing method. Okay. And so then... 
400 years later is when Gutenberg invented movable type. Yeah. <laughs> and so 400 years after the Chinese guy invented it. But that's the story of Europe. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, even in the beginning, this was not particularly cheap, but it was steps towards making things cheaper, right? Yeah. And so in order to make the Gutenberg press successful, you would have to have better technologies with ink, better technologies with paper, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. People would have to suddenly be able to have eyeglasses. <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you are going to have to see it. <laughs> now, it's, now it's a problem if you can't see it. <laughs> they had water power paper mills. And so that was one of the first things they did. And again, make paper. You do the slurry, all, et cetera, et cetera, right? And paper making started taking off in the 13th century. And when that happened, then we had something that we could write on that was one-sixth the cost of parchment. That's what it started at. So it started off as being way less expensive than parchment, and then it just kept on dropping, right? Yeah. It's got competition. We're making out of tree garbage, right? Yeah, it's pretty hilarious. I think if you went back to the 1400s and you were like, ah, paper mills, huh? And they're like, yeah, you know, this is going to change the world. You'd say, I'd say... I wipe my ass with paper now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I use paper to clean the doo-doo off my ass, and then I throw the paper away. <laughs> We've actually got this special system that you put the shitty paper in water, and you flush that with the turds, and then that just goes down and sort of contaminates the water supply. <laughs> it's just perfectly clean, nice water that we poop in. Yeah. <laughs> the the water- water's to poop in. <laughs> that nice clean water and that clean white porcelain bowl that is for the pooping we poop like kings in the future they would be astonished i know they would they'd be like what no they would be like i don't understand what you're talking about i don't speak english the same as you and also i think that you're probably evil and you're dead already actually we killed you about three minutes ago That's what actually would happen if you went back in time. (laughs) I think that the mutual intelligibility would be extremely limited, especially considering that even among modern Americans, I'm not sure that all of us are mutually. I think we're mutually intelligible, but uh, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, for tone and dialect. <laughs> right, right. I don't think that my tone and dialect would come across the same, even if one were supposing that a 15th century German could understand English. Right. I have met people in America, in my own city that I live in, in situations, just like regular situations where I would talk to them and they would look at me like they didn't understand anything that I just said. It happens like once in a while and you just got to be like, it's fine. It's fine. I hope they have a nice day. But like the conversation is not going anywhere. Yeah, no, nowhere at all. Didn't get any response. Don't know what I'm supposed to do now. They look at you like with chicken face. You know how chickens don't ever look like they're thinking about anything? They got, they just got the, they, they got beautiful chicken faces, but they don't have anything going on behind the eyes they much. They got buck buck eyes. Yeah, they're buck 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 buck. <laughs> That's about all they're thinking about. And get that vibe sometimes off people. <laughs> Old chicken face. <laughs> In 1999, the A&E Network said that Gutenberg was number one on their people of the Millennium Countdown. 
<laughs> Congratulations, Johannes Gutenberg. I mean, like, I mean, I guess so, because I mean, like, Jesus was the first millennium. This was the second yeah, one, right? Yeah. Second millennium, yeah. We who, really we put the cap on that one, didn't we? Who we, else? We would, shut her down. Yeah. Who else would be better than Gutenberg? Like, if it wasn't for Gutenberg, no one would have read it all. I mean, the only downside to Gutenberg is that really himself, like just him, all he printed were Bibles. Right. I mean, then again, you get into some of those places and times, and that's the only thing you're really allowed to do. And you know what? Even if you found a book back in those days, if you were regular folk, which you probably would have been, and you found a book, it wouldn't even be in the language you spoke anyway. Even if you could read. Oh yeah, they were all in. They were all in Latin, right? Right. Right. I always like thinking. You know, this is back on some weirdo bullshit. But like, I think about like past life bullshit and reincarnation periodically. And one thing that I always think is very funny. When I see other people talking about this kind of stuff online, the way I can always tell someone is full of shit is when they are talking about their past lives and they have like a very fabulous past life of someone who was famous. <laughs> yeah. Like I was the Queen of England. Or I was Benjamin Franklin. No, you weren't. I was the Lord of a Manor. I was a Princess of Batavia. <laughs> You weren't. You were a regular person if you were anything. Like 99.999% chance you yeah. were regular people. Yeah, you were a regular person in Batavia. And <laughs> if you were if you were lucky once during the summer, you'd drive out 125 and go up to East Fork Lake. <laughs> That's all that was popping in your past life, homie. Right, right. Like, you were a meemaw, and then one day your sugar got real bad, and you fell asleep, and you never woke up. <laughs> That's more likely. And you, you came screaming back. You were a baby. Now you're back and ready to attack. Whatever it is you're attacking right now, I have fucking no idea. But anyway, that's that's just my, one of my peeves, reading weirdos on the internet talking their weirdo shit. You weren't famous in a past life. I think something that is frequently frustrating on the internet is that weird things, like truly weird, like paranormal things happen so seldomly. And like going outside and seeing a UFO, it doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen to very many people. Lots of people never see a ghost or a UFO. So if you're interested in this stuff, you would want to be part of it. And so I think there are people who are just trying to be part of this and trying to have an experience that you don't have any control over. Right. You find this stuff very interesting, as a lot of us do. And so you decide that you're you're going to maybe exaggerate something that happened because you want to have a story to tell because everybody else's stories are so great. Mm hmm I understand it. It's very human. It just also sucks. Right. Right. So one of my other favorite kind of books, we're talking about old books. Because once you start talking about printing presses, now we're going to start publishing books and it's just all books from here on out. Not very interesting, right? But if you talk about old books, one of my favorite things about old books is grimoires. <laughs> like the very old books that are magical textbooks or like lab notebooks. Like an effective book of spells. Right. Back in the old days, like if you were interested in that stuff, you might get your hands on one grimoire, right? And you would base everything you did off of that one grimoire. Or you would 
produce your own while you were doing experiments on your own, right? Yeah. And so grimoires have, like, instructions on how to make magical objects, like amulets and shit, and how to do spells and charms and divinations and how to summon entities and blah, 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 right? And they'll have, like, little drawings and little doodads and all kinds of crazy stuff in them, right? Yeah. So the again, the earliest grimoires were from Mesopotamia also. People were making grimoires like as soon as they were making making writings, right? Yeah. In the first century in Hellenistic Egypt, there were a lot of writings and books on magic that were credited to Hermes Trimagistus, which mm-hmm. was like a syncretic deity that was related to Toth in Egyptian mythology, right? And there was all kinds of dope-ass grimoires. Like, very cool shit. I always like thinking, like, what do you want to be when you are old, right? You have to have, like, plans for your life that don't involve you being, like, a young and cool person. Otherwise, you're going to be very unhappy when you're old, right? Yeah, for sure. When I think about what I want to be when I'm old, I want to be the old guy in the horror movie where the protagonist has to go find the old guy because the old guy has the book they need in order to battle the demon. (laughs) The old guy's not going to help you, but he will let you borrow the book and you better bring it back. (laughs) That's what what I want for my old age. I want to wait in my house until someone has to do a psychic battle and then I'll be like, I got that book. So you add, (laughs) so this is like very, I mean, this is like a classic trope almost in all kinds of genres of like fantastical, you know, literature and TV shows. The one that I think of is the glove cleaner episode (laughs) of the Twilight Zone where the guy goes to, to seek a man's guidance and he he comes into a library where the stacks of books are going up like 15 or 20 feet. Mm-hmm. And this guy has all this mystical shit. And of course he gives the guy the love potion for a dollar. Uh-huh. And then it's the glove cleaner that's going to cost you. Spoiler alert. <laughs> right, right. But you want to be the person in charge of all the esoteric knowledge and the person that is really keeping tabs on all this. So when somebody needs a piece of esoteric knowledge, you will have it. Right. Someone will knock on a door and be like, oh, I just went in my house and pinheads in the basement. I I got the book for that. (laughs) Well, the thing is, though, I think that that is a very reasonable position to take because for all the other things that you sacrifice as you age, one thing you gain is, is wisdom. You mm-hmm. have accumulated knowledge and wisdom, practical ways of, of conquering problems you've encountered in your long life. And I think there's also something very pro-social about being the person that you go to when you really need to fix something. Right. I was talking with a buddy of mine a little while ago about how it's like, uh, you know, there are different kinds of dads, but uh, we were talking about, you know, I I think we're both really the kind of uh, the kind of dad where, you know, somebody in the family gets something fucked up and like you you fix it. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Like, yeah, on Sunny in Philadelphia, there's an idea of Charlie work and really Charlie is the the guy in the ensemble that is fixing everybody's problems. When there are rats, you know, he's killing the rats in the barn and he 
he rigs everything up for the health inspector. Without him, everything would have fallen apart. Mm-hmm. But he is also derided for doing the shitty work. I'm not saying that dads are necessarily derided in society. Dads have a pretty high position of of uh, admiration in society. <laughs> you, might, you might even call it a patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact. Just tell me more about this patriarchy and how it's working out great for you. <laughs> no, the other thing is, okay, you get to help people. You get to have all your cool books, but stay relatively safe. All you're doing is watching the books, right? Absolutely. And then the most important element is you get all the gossip. All the people who have problems be like, oh, yeah, Joe, his his daughter is possessed by a duke of hell. <laughs> he was just over here the other day asking for a book. <laughs> yes, that's why he's been. I think that's, you know, you said he seemed distracted. And I bet that's why, because of his daughter being possessed. Uh-huh. I mean, that would distract any of us. Right, right. See? So you get all the gossip, you get to help your people out, that's pro-social, you get to have all the cool books, you get all of the adventure of hearing about people with big time problems without like dabbling in the dark shit and troubling yourself with it. I also think there's a degree of satisfaction in being the person with the books rather than the person who is going to do the work. Right. So you have a position where you have this knowledge and you have all of these references and you have this ability to do this stuff but it's very important that you are handing it over to somebody else and that other person has to be able to use that knowledge and they are effectively you are giving them the knowledge but you are not doing it for them Mm -hmm. i think that is a really great way to set boundaries right (laughs) right but in the meantime, I just got to keep on collecting books. My book collection is, is, is still pretty small. And it's mostly shit like visitors from Lanulos. <laughs> Someone's going to be like, I saw some yeah. shit. I saw some shit. Like, I got a book by Woodrow Derenberger. You're going to love it. <laughs> He'll tell you about how to start being friends with those aliens. <laughs> visitors from Lanulos is pretty hot. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you learn today about books? baby i find it interesting that we were like recording and organizing knowledge so long ago three thousand years before zero negative three thousand so that's like five thousand years ago and we just didn't have paper yet yeah we had to go through all of the iterations of papyrus and animal skin finally setting on grinding up trees right right it's amazing It's amazing that a species so stupid figured out how to make books eventually. I can't believe that we didn't figure out to put spaces in the words until like the 1200s. (laughs) It was all one big word until then. That is pretty (laughs) monumental and honestly pretty recent. And it took, they, they made the first discovery. They're like, wait a second, that first discovery. And then it took 500 years for people to pick that up. Like there were still holdouts and people only live 70, 80 years. Right. So these are multiple generations. You're like four generations down from the first Irish wizard who figured out to put spaces between the words. <laughs> and you're like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah right right you know 
just goes to show you there's these patterns that are gonna that are gonna repeat everything eventually works out but as you may have noticed from the space problem everything all of human challenges that we run into we do eventually solve them unfortunately it may not get solved in your lifetime humans are pretty slow with that stuff at least compared to how long we live right and that is why you have to find happiness in your life the way it is because nothing will ever change in any meaningful way well if you wait <laughs> you do your best you do your best you support the people who are doing good things but ultimately, if you have to wait for society overall to completely change, all of society to change, like including all the backlash and everything, if you want to wait for spaces to get put in between your words, you got to put the spaces in yourself. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Corey Grella has a lot of spaces in her words, did you know that? I can think of nobody who is better served by separating their words with spaces than Corey Grella. There's no way she would be able to communicate those awesome deals. If it wasn't for the spaces in between words, she would be Corey Grella. Yeah, all one word, not nearly as cool. <laughs> right, right. Natalie, if you were to go to one place to write a book, Pastoral Beauty, Quietude. Harlem Township. I would, you know what, if I wrote a book about Harlem Township, it would be about 500 pages long. It have a beautiful cover with all kinds of trees on it, and it would say Harlem Township, and then you'd open it up, and there'd be nothing in it because it's just so quiet and peaceful. Yeah, yeah, that's one. I I just thought you would go there to write a book about anything else. Right. There's, just, <laughs> there's not a lot there. It's a lovely place, great people. We love them. Fences. They got fences and grass. That's how you. Roads are paved. Just all the basic setups. Just if you. We're going to preload a little thriving hamlet in Sim City. It might be Harlem Township right there. Man, if I was playing Sims, I would love to crack open a map that looked like Harlem Township because it would be beautiful and no one had built a house there yet. <laughs> well, if you haven't already, patreon.com slash garbagebrainuniversity. That's how you get in. Join the Discord. Suggest topics to us such as this topic, which was suggested by uh, some folks in our Discord. From Todd and Zimbalina. Thank you for the suggestion. If you've got something you want us to talk about, jump in there, tell us. There's no other way. Right, that's how you do it. I don't I don't look at my replies. I can't I can't. You'd be surprised how nice stuff. I am on the Discord. You might maybe you think, oh, you know, she is so eloquent. Her podcast is listened to by literally hundreds of people. How could how could she be so down to earth? You you'd be shocked. I'm humble and I'm likable and I am very charming and I will say happy birthday. <laughs> We love her, folks. So. Right, right. Thanks again for listening. <laughs> and we'll talk to you again soon. I love you. Goodbye.